0: Well, my name's Brandon. Good to be with you guys this morning. I'm one of the, the other one of the pastors here at River City. Um, welcome. If you're new, especially welcome. Glad to have you guys this morning. Uh, last week we uh, began a series uh, that we're going to be in all summer called uh, Jesus on Every Page, the Gospel in the Old Testament. It's a catchy title I stole from somewhere else, so I'm not that clever, right? Um, but uh, throughout our series... Uh, We're going to be taking a look at a bunch of Old Testament stories, maybe stories that you grew up hearing all the time, maybe some that you've never heard before. Um, But all of them point us towards Jesus, and they're whispering his name. They're a foreshadowing of him. And at River City, we believe that all of the Bible is about Jesus. We believe that the Old Testament is foreshadowing him, and we believe that the New Testament and the Gospels is about him, and it's the record of his words. And we believe that the, the letters in the New Testament are uh, a result of who Jesus was and all that he did and are ultimately looking forward to his return. And so last week we saw in uh, Luke chapter 24 that the idea that the whole Bible is about Jesus isn't something that I came up with. But it's something that Jesus said was true as he explained about who he was and all that was said about him in the Old Testament to the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And uh, last week we talked about six non-secretive, non-coded ways that we see Jesus in the Old Testament, right? And we talked about Christophanies, which are appearances of Jesus um, in other forms throughout the Old Testament. We talked about types and, and prophecies. We talked about um, analogous service and events. And lastly, we talked about titles. And uh, this morning, as we study our passage, we will get a little bit of prophecy. We will get a little bit of typology. A couple of different ways that we'll see Jesus this morning. But we said it's, it's really important. It, it is, In fact, it's the most important thing that we can do when we read God's word, is to see Jesus in all of it. That's the most important thing. And like what happened with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, if we miss Jesus at the center of everything, if we miss him in every passage, then what's going to happen is that we're going to miss the point of all of the stories. And we're going to miss the joy that is intended to be there when we see Jesus in all of things. And I say, we'll, we'll miss the one that we're actually supposed to worship if we don't see him at the center of all the stories. And so I'm really looking forward to our series together. Hopefully after last week, you as well are looking forward to our series this summer. Um, and so uh, as we begin this morning uh, on our study of the Old Testament, uh, we begin at uh, the best place to begin, right? The beginning. We'll be in Genesis this morning, and um, in order for us to see how the Old Testament, how all of it's pointing towards Jesus, how all of it's foreshadowing him, all of it's longing for him and leading us towards dead ends, that that cause us to wait for Jesus, uh, we've got to see the need for him at all. We've got to see the need for the gospel in all things. And, and so as you've heard me say many times before, uh, the good news is only good if there's bad news, right? And so we're in the bad news a little bit this morning in Genesis chapter 3. We make it a, a whole two chapters into the Bible before everything gets jacked up, which when you think about humanity sounds about right. I think about my living room. And the toy tornado that happens, that's about the timing for that as well, right? As humans, we are incredibly good at messing stuff up. It is, we are naturally gifted in that category. But the Bible describes and, and identifies the cause of all this destruction, all the chaos that we see in our living rooms and in our lives and in our worlds. The Bible describes the cause of all of that as sin. It's the thing that causes the, the destruction of God's good creation that uh, happened in Genesis chapter 1. So in our passage this morning, uh, we're going to see three things about sin in our passage in Genesis chapter 3. Number one, we're going to see the root of sin. Number two, we're going to see the results of sin. And lastly, we're going to see the promised remedy for sin. So let's read our passage and pray We'll dive into God's word together this morning. We're in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty um, than any of the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, "Uh, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did not say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. And you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from, from it, your eyes will be opened. And you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they realized that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden, but the Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. But the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the servant, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You'll crawl on, the, on your belly and you'll eat dust all the days of your life. And I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And to the woman he said, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, but he will rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from all the days of your life. And It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you'll eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. And Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all of the living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had taken. And after he drove the man out and he placed on the east side of the garden of Eden a cherubim and a flaming sword, flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. God, thanks for your word. We're so grateful that you would um, re- just keep it for us, that we might see you and know you. God, we're so grateful that you don't hide from us, but you long to be known. And, and so we just trust as we study your word this morning that you will continue to show us more and more of who you are. And as well, you'd show us who we are as well. God, we pray that, um, yeah, I just pray that in our passage this morning, you'd cause us to see you, to see your son, Jesus. That would cause us to love and treasure and worship him. God, so I pray as I teach and speak this morning that you'd fill me with your spirit so that I'd have anything valuable to offer this morning. God, we just pray all these things that they'd result in our good and our, and our love for you and they result in your glory. I pray them in your good name. Amen. Amen. So I said three things we'll see about sin this morning. First, the root. Verse 6, sin enters the world when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and desirable for gaining wisdom, and she took some and she ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So what was, what, was, what was the first sin? I mean, corrupting the whole world seems like a bit extreme for like some fruit eating. It seems like a little over the top, right, if we are honest with each other, right? It's just some fruit. I think it's important that we just dive back just a few chapters before this to see why it really matters. In chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, um, God's talking to Adam and Eve, and he says, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you'll certainly die. God's provided everything that Adam and Eve could possibly have wanted or needed. He's planted and placed them in this, this paradise garden with everything they could want to eat and, and a beauty all around them. And he gives them this command in order to protect them. To protect them from themselves. But the man and the woman, they trust their own judgment rather than God's, and they take and eat and their eyes are opened. That's for sure. <laughs> But it wasn't nearly as glorious as the serpent seemed to have promised it would be. Reminds me uh, when Emma was little. Um, she saw me putting steak sauce on my steak at dinner time, right? And she just like insisted, like, I must have whatever that is. It must be mine, right? The only problem is, the only thing on her plate was yogurt. So I tried to explain to her, Emma... You do not want this. This is not going to be good with yogurt, science, all of those things, right? Uh, she's like, "No, I must have yogurt." She's just like, "Chris, refuse. I must, must have, must have the steak sauce on my yogurt." So I said, "Okay." Yes, dropped it on there, right? I gave her a nice, generous helping, right? And she is just like beaming. She's just like, "This is gonna be incredible," right? And she reaches out, she takes, her sti- she takes her first bite, and the look on her face was just like absolute disgust and horror, right? Vinegar and dairy, those do not go together, right? In every possible way, those do not go together. See, it turned out the, the knowledge she wanted, the experience she thought that would be the best for her, it wasn't what she thought it was. It didn't give the, the joy that she thought it would give. What she thought she really wanted, she now absolutely regretted <laughs> so what what what's the fruit that they're eating right is there something like is it like is there some chemical compound that's that's causing death in this fruit that they 're eating right is it like some weird tree no the 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 tree's fine it's beautiful it's probably the most beautiful of all the trees in the garden see the fruit isn't like physical evil inside of an apple, right? The fruit of the tree is independence. It's the decision to choose for themselves what is good and right. It's the decision to take away from God the authority to determine how creation is supposed to work and rather to set themselves up as the ones who have authority to decide what is good and pleasing and right and wrong. See, when you create everything from nothing, you get to have the authority, And the authority to decide what is right and wrong belongs to God alone. The woman and the man, they decide that they can no longer trust God to act in their best interests. So they take his authority into their own hands. They become the judge of what is right and wrong. And what they're saying is, God, we're staging a coup. You're not in charge anymore. We are. And we reject your leadership and your authority. We reject you and we put ourselves on the throne. You see, the first sin is is not eating an apple. The first sin is choosing to be God. That's at the root of every sin. It's a rejection of God as the one who has all authority. And it's an enthroning of ourselves on the throne of all authority. That's the root of the first sin and it is the root of all sin. We want to be God. We want to run our lives and run the world as we see fit. And we want to reject God as the king. It is an insurrection. It is mutiny. It is opposition to God in every possible way. And at need, they realize it too late. That they weren't wise enough to play God. That they didn't understand what would be opened with their disobedience. See, making ourselves God, making ourselves the judge of what is right and wrong, it seems in the moment like it is going to be incredible. Like it really will, will keep those things that we think will give us happiness, it'll, it'll free us up to enjoy those things as we think it really will. It looks good and pleasing and wise and life-giving, but as one commentator writes, just like the goldfish that wants to liberate itself from its water will not experience freedom while flopping on the floor and gasping for breath. Nor will we experience freedom by acting as God as ourselves. He says, no, the freedom to be a goldfish is only possible when it stays within the water that it's designed for. The water is not a prison for the goldfish. The water is the goldfish paradise. See, likewise for us, God's Boundaries, the design he sets for our lives, they're not not a prison. They're guides to the paradise that God's designed for us to live in as he designed humanity, as it works best, as it's intended to be. Just like Adam and Eve, we think we know better than God all the time, don't we? Just like Emma, who really needed the steak sauce on her yogurt. We think we know better. You see, what happens is sin always promises what it can never deliver. The scheme of Satan to draw us into sin, it's deception. It's lies. The tool he uses, the method he uses to lure us into sin is to lie. See, sin lies to us. It always tells us it has something that we need. It has the life, the satisfaction, the pleasure, the knowledge that we long for. It has something that we're incomplete without having. And sin lies to us like it lied to Eve in the garden. And it happens subtly at first. And then it's stronger and stronger and greater and greater, right? Do you you see the lies that Satan was telling Eve? Did God really say that you you shouldn't eat from any tree in the garden? No. God just said I shouldn't eat from this one. You're not really going to die if you eat from the tree. Well, God said that was exactly what would happen. God doesn't want you to be like him he just wants to keep your eyes closed you see the lies that satan they're just they're just compounding and building and they're getting more warped and greater and greater See, the lies that sin tells us, they're designed to cause us to doubt God, to doubt his goodness, to doubt the consequences or the repercussions of our actions and of our rebellion. And what happens is we slowly start to believe those lies, sometimes not even noticing it, right? And you see that happening with Eve, right? Eve saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food. It was pleasing to the eye. And it was desirable for gaining wisdom. You just like imagine the thinking that's going on in her head, right? why would God want to keep that from me? Of course he wants me to have that. Of course God wants me to enjoy this. Of, of course he wants, I want this. It, it seems good. Of course God wants it for me. And what happens is the deception, it leads to desire and temptation. There's this uh, famous, uh, old Christian, uh, songwriter named Rich Mullins. And, uh, Uh, In his song, Hold Me, Jesus, Rich Mullins talks about his battle with the lies and deception of sin. And uh, there's this line in in, uh, the song where he says, "Um, God, I don't know why I'd rather fight you for something I don't really want than take what you give that I need. He says, hold me, Jesus, because I'm shaking like a leaf. And in the song, what he's writing about is the the fierceness of the feeling of sin and its temptation and its longing and the battle that is raging within his heart that he thinks he's like, God, I know this won't satisfy, but I want it so badly. And what he's saying is he feels like a leaf at the end of fall that is blowing in the wind and is just about to break. And he says, hold me. You see, the Bible talks about sin in a lot of the same ways. And just a chapter later in Genesis 4, uh, God describes sin. It says, sin is crouching at your door and it desires to have you. With each lie, the weight and the lure of sin increases. And it often feels like that crouching tiger that is waiting to pounce, doesn't it? And so we either choose to believe that it will give the thing that it offers Or we just don't know how to resist it anymore. And so we choose disobedience. And it's not a little thing. It's choosing to disobey. It's a a dethroning of God. And it's saying, God, I don't believe what you have to say is right or good or best for me. I'll choose. I'll decide. You're not king anymore. I am. See in all of us every human in all of history has made that choice. I have made that choice. You have made that choice. James chapter 1 says it this way but each person is tempted when it is when he is lured and enticed by his own desires, then the desire when it's conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it's fully grown gives birth to death. You see the root of sin is that we want to be God. And the results are always the same. They lead to death. Adam and Eve, they ate the fruit and they dethroned God as king and they tried to sit in his place. They thought it'd be better if they did, right? They realized too late that it was not the spot for them. Verse seven says, when both of them ate it and their eyes were opened, they realized they were naked And so they sewed fig leaves together and they made coverings for themselves. What they thought would be life-giving and freeing was actually the exact opposite. Just a few verses earlier in chapter 2, it says that they were naked and without shame. They were living life to the fullest as God intended for it to be. Enjoying creation and the Creator. But now they're consumed with guilt and shame. It's like biting into that apple that looks so good and eating the half of the worm. I want to break this down because I think it's really important that we see what's going on here, right? See, Adam and Eve, they experience two things. They experience guilt and shame, right? But those are not the same thing. Those are different things. See, guilt is the feeling that you get when you, it's the feeling that you did something bad, right? Guilt is, I did something that was wrong. I did something that was bad. And guilt is actually not a bad thing. Guilt is good. Because what happens is, is that God puts that sense of guilt within us so that we'll turn and that will run from sin, that will repent and turn back towards following him. But what happens far too often is that guilt, which is intended to lead us, to point us back towards God, guilt often instead leads to shame, which causes us to run from God. See, if guilt is I did something bad, then shame is the feeling that I am something bad. Verse 7, they realized they were naked, and so they sewed coverings. They're just ashamed. See, guilt and shame are a tag team. They are the dynamic duo. They are MJ and Pippin. They are Master Chief and Cortana, right? They are Batman and Robin. Except guilt and shame do not work for good. They work for evil, right? Instead of working in tandem for good, they work in tandem uh, to bring about fear. And we see that in verse 10. Right, they were afraid, and so they hide from God. And fear always leads to hiding. Adam says, "I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. My shame led me to uh, my guilt, led me to shame, which led me to fear, which always led me to hide. And instead of running to be with God, as I'm sure they would have done every day as they heard Him walking in the garden, they run from Him and they hide from Him." Their Creator, the one who called them good, who was pleased with them, who loved them, who walked with them in the cool of the garden every morning. They hide from him instead of running to him. You see, sin had destroyed their relationship with God. But you need to see this. The effects of sin are not just internal and spiritual. The effects of sin, the results of sin, that Genesis 3 lines out, they are external and they're physical as well. Verse 16, we see that there's pain and labor. In verses 17 and 18, that the ground is cursed, that it produces thorns and thistles. See, sin, sin doesn't affect us. It affects everyone and everything around us. Roman, Romans 8 goes far as to say this. It says, all of creation is groaning as it does with the pains of childbirth. And it says, it's doing so waiting for redeeming waiting for a redemption you see the world's not as it should be you can look at that and see it's not the way it should be that's because of sin you see sin corrupts everything and i think in a number of ways we see that the most significant thing that sin is already begun corrupting is adam and eve's relationship They weren't just hiding from God. They sewed clothes to hide from each other. There's nobody else around. There's not like a... uh, there's There's no paparazzi. It's just them. They're hiding from each other. And furthermore, their guilt and their shame that led them to hide from God and hide from each other, it now begins to work itself out in blame. Right? Verse 12... God's asking them, what, what happened here, right? And Adam responds, the woman you put here with me, she gave it to me. It's blame, right? It's not my fault, it's her fault. And he goes further, no, God, it's, it's actually not her fault, it's your fault. You put her here with me. And so Adam is blame shifting. Eve as well, God turns to Eve and Eve just says, no, it was the serp- it wasn't me, it was the serpent. She deceived me. It's not my fault, God. It's someone else's. Jeff Anderson, I think, really helpfully points out what's happening here and what's happening all the time when we blame someone else for our sin is that, he says, we are looking for an atoning sacrifice. We're looking for someone else to bear the weight of our sin. We're looking for someone else to pay the penalty for our sin. And there's only one who can pay the penalty, See, when you look to somebody else other than Jesus to take the blame for your sin, you're going to destroy them. That happens all the time in our friendships and in our marriages. When we sin against each other, we don't first look to ourselves. We always look at the other. We're always looking, well, well, I know I did that, but I wouldn't have done that if they wouldn't have done X, Y, or Z. Or if they wouldn't have said X, Y, or Z. Or if they would have just done X, Y, or Z, then I wouldn't have had to. We're always looking for someone else to bear the weight of our sin because we can't handle it. And rightly, we feel the guilt of our rebellion. We just know that we can't handle it, and so we try to dispel it, and we try to displace it. So Adam and Eve, they hide from each other. They blame each other. And in verse 16, we see one of the most painful ways that sin affects their relationship and the relationship between men and women. Verse 16 says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Tim Keller notes about verse 16, I think just really helpfully. He says, the words desire and rule in the original language both have a negative connotation. And so what they're saying is this, that sin will tend to make men try to dominate women. And sin will tend to lead men to idolize power in sexual relationships. Man, history bears that out. Just look throughout any age in any history. That's what you see. And he goes on and he says that sin will, cause, will tend to cause women to make an idol out of relationships. It's that longing for completion and wholeness that's sought in a man. You see, even with that in little girls and little kids who are playing, it's just this consummation with planning a wedding or being boy crazy. And you see it far drastically on other ways. You see, sin distorts everything. Where once Eve was Adam's perfect helper, his complement, two puzzle pieces that fit perfectly together, bringing help and support and joy to each other. Where once their desire for each other was healthy and good, leading to love and submission and sacrifice for one another, and partnering and taking care of this garden that needed care. And said, now sin's corrupted that, and there's this battle between them at all times. Lastly, we see that the results of sin always lead to death. Adam and Eve were created to live forever with God, to worship Him, to enjoy Him in relationship. And in verse 19, sin breaks that, right? For dust you were taken, for dust you are, for dust you'll return. There's this old uh, newspaper column writer named uh, Irma uh, Irma Bombeck, and she kind of wrote humorous columns in in the newspaper. And uh, she writes... Uh, about her life, uh, a lot of times as a as a mom and as a housewife, and one of the columns she writes, she talks about dirt. Right? She says that dirt's like the her chief enemy in in all of her life. She writes, uh, "Dirt in the diaper, dirt in the plate, dirt in the rug, dirt on the clothes. All of your life, you spend fighting dirt. You can't. You start at one end of the house. By the time you get to the other, it's just dirty again." And she closes this this paragraph, and she says, "And what do you get at the end of your life?" for all this trouble, for all this fighting dirt, you get six feet of dirt. That's exactly what Genesis three nineteen is saying. On our lives, we're warring against the effects of sin. We're warring against the dirt and the destruction and the chaos of sin. And at the end, it overcomes. At the end, we just get six more feet of it. See the results of sin are deep and wide. They are internal. They are external. They are spiritual. They are physical. Sin has destroyed humanity's relationship with God and with one another and with creation. And I just want to be clear as as we kind of wrap things up here. God is not getting back at Adam and Eve for disobeying Him. He's not like, oh, okay, I see how it is. Now we're now we're going to see who's God, right? Now we're going to see who, if you can stand up to this. No, that's not what God is saying. See, what happens in Adam and Eve's life and in the destruction of all the world, it's not God's punishment for them. It's the natural outworking of what happens when we rebel against God. When we try to use something for the way it was never intended to be used, it's broken. It doesn't last. It breaks. It wears out. It doesn't work. It just breaks down. That's what happens when we reject God's good design and his good plans, and we oust him as king, and we put ourselves on the throne. I was reading a column this last week and um, the situation is really not important but um, one of the things that just stuck out to me is I know what the Bible says about this. I just know I don't care. This person like they just chose to reject God's rule and authority because they felt like God was, they felt like they should be doing something. That happens all the time for us. We just think, man, Why would God want to keep that from us? No, I'll pursue it. That'll give life. It'll be the thing I long for. And it never works. It always leaves us empty. But it's here in the, the swamp that is the result of sin. In Adam and Eve's fear and hiding, in their finger pointing, in the shadow that death now brings. Just moments into sin's entrance into the world, when it feels like everything is lost, when it feels like the destruction is complete, we see that God promises a remedy for sin. One day everything would be set right again. Verse 15 foreshadows all of this. God is speaking to Satan the serpent here and is referred to by theologians as the Proto-Evangelion or the first proclamation of the gospel Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between her offspring and yours, and he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. See, God is here just moments into the destruction of his good creation by sin. He's promising a remedy. He's promising that it won't always be this way. That the war that is there, that the battle that is there, one day it will be over. One day, everything will return to the way it was intended to be as he set it up when he called it good in creation. You see, in the end, God promises that there will be one born from the woman that will crush the head of Satan and sin and death. And in verse 15, he promises to overcome Satan and sin and death. And in the person and work of Jesus, he did. You see, Adam and Eve, they rightly feel the weight of the guilt that is their rebellion against God. And they tried to blame someone else for their sin. They needed someone else to bear the weight of their sin because they couldn't handle it. And neither can we. You see, in the gospel, in Christ, God is saying, point the finger at me. Blame me. I can take it. I will live the life that you should have lived, that you never could. And I will die the death that you deserved. And I will take the blame. And I will take the punishment. And I will take your place. In 2 Corinthians 5, he says, For our, said, for our sake he made him to be, who knew no sin to be sin for us. That in him we would become God's righteousness. Jesus is saying, I will bear the weight of your sin. I will do it completely. I will do it fully. And in, in me I will finish it. See, the redemptive work that would culminate in the person and work of Jesus, God already begins bringing about in verse 21. And it says that God covered them and he clothed them, making garments for them out of animal skin. Animals had to die for those coverings to be made. And they hid their shame from one another, but they didn't hide it from God. And those clothes that God made, they wouldn't last. They'd wear out, they'd need replacing like all the clothes that we all wear. But there is coming a day, and there would be coming a day, when one day God would clothe humanity not with incomplete and temporary garments, but he'd clothe us with Christ himself, who died in order to clothe us with his righteousness, Isaiah 61, verse 10 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in God, for he's clothed me with garments of salvation, arrayed me in a robe of righteousness. You see, Jesus' righteousness, our new clothes, they don't wear out, they don't need replacing. Instead, they're complete and they're imperishable. And his covering of us is not just a mowing over of sin. It's not an out of sight, out of mind. It's a, it's a cleansing of all things. It's the pure and spotless blamelessness Jesus is standing, given to us. It's a return back to the garden, back to Genesis 1, where God creates all of things and he finishes it all. And he says, it's very You see, this is the best news of all. You see, sin sin says that we should feel ashamed, so hide and run. And the gospel says, come out of hiding. You have nothing left to fear. See, the gospel of Jesus reminds us we never have to hide anymore. You can always come clean. We can always confess our sins. God's faithful to forgive. We don't have to fear being found out any longer. We're already loved, and God knew how desperately we opposed him. We're already accepted. We're already forgiven. When you were enemies of God, God did those things for you. We're Already treasured and enjoyed and loved as his kids. The gospel says, come out of hiding. See, sin says that you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. And the gospel says, forgiven, clean, righteous, restored, paid for. The gospel cries out, righteous, righteous, righteous. So that's the best news in all of the universe. Romans chapter 5, the Bible describes Adam as a type of one who was to come. A foreshadowing of this one who, uh, this one who would be Jesus. But in all the ways that Adam fell short, we see Jesus triumph. You see, Adam brought sin and condemnation into the world. But Jesus brings justification and righteousness. Adam ran away from God in fear. But in in Christ, God runs towards us in loving rescue. Adam tried to cover his own nakedness. But Jesus became naked to cover ours. Adam, who was guilty, blamed others for his rebellion. But Jesus, who was innocent, took the blame for our rebellion. Adam ate from the tree of knowledge and it brought death. But Jesus knew death on a tree, and it brought life. You see, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden. And instead of giving us sin, as Adam did, he gives us his righteousness. He's the only answer to Satan and sin and death. No other religious system or worldview can answer that problem. Mark Dever says it this way. All religions lead to God. They lead straight to his judgment seat. But it's only in Jesus that there's a Savior. You see, he's the only one that can rescue because he's the only one that could pay the penalty. He's the only one that could bear the weight of our sin. He is on the cross he did. It's through faith in his redeeming work on our behalf that we lay hold of that freedom. You see, Genesis 3 lays out for us the root of sin and it lays out for us the results of sin and it promises the remedy for sin. And the invitation then is that we've got to respond to it, right? I've been praying all week that God would help us all to respond to this because there are some of you who have never received that and there are even more of us who have forgotten it. There may be some of you here that who have you've never given your hearts and your minds and your lives over to Jesus. You've never believed in his work on your behalf to set you free from the penalty of sin. You've never asked him to forgive you and to be your new leader of your life, to be the one who controls and leads and guides and directs you out of his goodness. You've never asked him to be the king again. And maybe you've called yourself a Christian, but you've never believed that gospel. this morning, God's inviting you to respond to him. I think like me, there are many of us who just often forget. We forgot that we're already forgiven, that we don't need to hide, and that we can come out of hiding. We've forgotten that it's not our righteousness that makes us right before God, but Jesus' righteousness on our behalf. So we didn't earn it by some great performance, and we can't jack it up with our inevitable mistakes. And instead of believing the gospel and holding fast to Jesus, who gives life and sets us free and gives us the motivations and the power to actually live and love and obey God, instead of believing those things, we've been believing the lie that sin will satisfy. And it's leaving you empty and dry over and over. Or you've been trying to beat sin on your own efforts, on your own power, and you just suck at it. Because we all do. And you're constantly feeling condemned and overwhelmed and you're full of guilt and you're full of shame. And you need to remember when Adam and Eve were driven from the garden, God placed a cherubim with a flaming sword. It was there to guard the entrance back to relationship with God. See, to get back in relationship with God, someone's got to go through that sword. And you will never make it. There's not enough armor in the world. But what happened is on the cross, that's what Jesus did. You see, when Jesus hung naked and shamefully on the cross, that was Him going through the sword for you. His work on your behalf. There's no longer anything blocking your relationship to God. It's through faith in Him that you're restored. And so if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you are clothed with his righteousness. His perfect, spotless, blameless standing with God. That's yours if your hope is in him. Whether you realize it or not, that's what's true. And so run to him. When we sin, don't run from God, run to him. And cling tightly to Jesus, even though you feel like the leaf at the end of the branch it falls, shaking as you just feel like you can't do anything but give in. And so we cling to Jesus, our righteousness, and we never let go of him. Romans 4, chapter 7, chapter verse 4, chapter 7, Romans 4. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You see, what happened on the cross is that Jesus took it. And there's always a penalty for sin. Either you will pay it or Jesus will. And the gospel's invitation is let Jesus pay it for you. Let that fill and fuel and motivate your life. Let it be the thing that causes you to love and cherish God and long to live for him. Let his victory over Satan and sin and death become your victory over it. There's no way you can win without him. There's no way he even helps you to win. It's either he fixes it, he finishes it, or nothing changes. And so the invitation of the gospel is free and it's open to everyone, but it's only through Jesus. And he says, come to me and have life. Sin can never give it to you. Come to me that you'd have life. I will restore. I will renew. And see, Genesis 3 is a reminder for us of the root of our sin. And it's a reminder about the results that sin always leads to. And above all, it is a promise that there would be a remedy for sin. And it's Jesus. Just him. Only him. Always. Let's pray. King Jesus, we're so thankful that you are on every page. That Genesis 3 isn't just a story of the failing of humanity, of our rebellion, and of our sin. God, but it's a promise that you'd fix it. God, it's a promise even in the midst of the depths of sin. God, that you are at work restoring and redeeming. And we're so thankful that you are not just in the New Testament, that you're on every page in the Old. We need you there, God. We need you on every page, King Jesus. Otherwise, there's no hope and there's no life and there's no joy. God, help us to see the good news about the gospel here in Genesis 3. Help us to turn and run from sin and run towards you instead of run from one another and run from you. God, we need you to do it within us for our good and for your glory. God, for those who have never received that and laid hold to it, God, I pray that they'd reach out and take it from you, that they'd acknowledge their sin, that they'd turn in repentance towards you, and that they'd hold fast to your gift to them of life and and the payment of their sin on your behalf. God, and for those of us who have forgotten and who always forget, God, help us to remember that it's you who went through the sword on our behalf. And that we have a right relationship with God because of you, Jesus. Help us to remember. Amen.